The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight we discuss Echoes of Eden. What secrets of human potential were buried with our ancestors' memories of ET contact? Ancient stories from around the world describe entities which today we would call ETs. But other secrets lie hidden in the world's ancestral narratives, from Senate briefings in Washington, D.C., to secret ceremonies in Southern Africa, from strange phenomena in Australia and Iraq, to mysterious encounters in modern Brazil and ancient Greece. Tonight's discussion about Echoes of Eden will take you around the globe to discover why military, intelligence, and other government agencies are so interested in archaeology, indigenous rituals, and traditional initiation practices. What is the connection between higher cognitive powers like remote viewing and precognition and ET contact in the deep past? What are the implications for you and me? You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, Rebounders, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at, veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Paul Anthony Wallace is an internationally best-selling author, whose books probe world mythologies and ancestral narratives for their insights into human origins, human potential, and our plays in the cosmos. As a senior churchman, Paul served as a church doctor, a theological educator, and an archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia, and has published numerous titles on Christian mysticism and spirituality. He is a popular speaker at summits and conferences around the world. His books include Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, and the newest, Echoes of Eden, which will be the focus of tonight's interview. In collaboration with The Fifth Kind TV, Paul's interviews and documentaries are watched by millions worldwide. And directly from the capital of Australia, Canberra, I'm privileged to welcome my special guest today, Paul Wallace. Hello, Paul, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? G'day, Mel. I'm fantastic, thanks. And thanks so much for having me on your show today. Well, first, congratulations on your new book, Echoes of Eden, Paul, I have to ask you, many great authors like you, Eric Von Daniken and others, use the term Eden a lot. Are you speaking figuratively, or did Eden really exist in one specific location? Well, Eden, as referenced in the book of Genesis, I believe is a reference to a particular place on planet Earth in the deep past. My research has led me to conclude that it doesn't mean quite what we thought it did, that it's not the place we imagine when we hear that word, because we generally picture a paradise when we hear the word Eden. But I guess the title of my first book in Paleo Contact, Escaping from Eden, gives the game away that I think actually something else was going on there than we usually think. If Eden existed, what caused the ancestral memory amnesia? Was it a 
catastrophe that caused it, or as Barbara Handclaw calls it, catastrophobia, and that's why we don't remember it. That's a really wonderful phrase for it, catastrophobia, because as I research world mythologies and ancestral narratives all around the world, and I went there because I was finding parallels to what is hidden in plain sight in the book of Genesis, what I found was the record of a sequence of previous civilizations and the details of the stories that overlap from culture to culture, from age to age, all seem to resolve, revolve around traumatic experiences. And so when you drill down into the ancient text, you've got a blend of remembering and forgetting in the text itself. So I think catastrophobia puts it rather neatly. Now, I want to learn, obviously, I want to learn more about your initiation into the realm of ETs, when and how it began. But before you tell me, your work is in paleocontact. For the audience, can you define that term? Yes, paleocontact is the theory that our ancestors in the deep past had contact with extraterrestrial um, visitations, colonization, visitors from other parts of the cosmos, visitors from other parts of our cosmic family. So now let's go to your initiation. How did you begin in all of this? Your research and even your ET contact, which we'll discuss in a moment, I, uh, I know Barbara Lamb very well, the beautiful <clears throat> lady that hypnotically regressed you. We'll touch that in a moment. But tell me about your initiation into this world. Well, there are so many start points to this story. But what surprises people about my route into the world of paleo contact is that it's come from the world of Christian ministry. I spent 33 years in church-based ministry as a church doctor, a theological educator, an archdeacon for the Anglican, Anglican Church in Australia. And it was that role as a theological educator that really led me down this rabbit hole because I would teach pastors hermeneutics, and those are the principles of interpreting ancient texts. And this was for them to apply to their teaching from the Bible. And so I'd teach them things like form criticism and source criticism, and that's where you ask, what kind of literature is this that we're studying? You ask it of every text. Where's it come from? Is it the same as the original, or does it differ? And if it differs, why does it differ? And then always you ask the fundamental question, what do the words mean? And it was as I applied those tools to some of the anomalies that occur in the stories we generally tell from the Bible, that another story began to emerge and the kind of anomalies I mean are the ones anybody would mention if they were to sit down and read through the book of Genesis. Every person would ask questions like this. Even a child with a child's Bible would say, why does God say, let us make? Let us make the humans to look like one of us. Or why did God make the snake? Couldn't he see something was going to go wrong? And then the death penalty for eating a piece of fruit, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? Now a God of love is genociding people in the flood? And then what is really going on in Genesis 11? Did we really get bombed back into a pre-Stone Age condition because we breached uh, zoning laws and built a building that was too tall? So these are the obvious kinds of questions. And most parents sitting down with a child will give an answer and think, oh, I need to think a bit more about that. And it's no different to preachers. They will preach through the text. They're under pressure to find out the moral of the story is from Sunday to Sunday, and we'll think, 
gosh, I need to drill down into that. There's something else going on there. And it wasn't until I did that and applied those source critical skills and did some translation work that would get me to the root meanings of the key words that I realized that these anomalies revolve around translation issues and that when you favor root meanings over the traditional interpretation of some key words, a whole other layer of story suddenly emerges and it resolves a lot of these odd grammatical and moral problems. All of a sudden, a story of paleocontact emerges, but it's not a random story. You do the translation work, and what happens is that the Bible does a flip and it lines up in parallel with its source narratives from out of ancient Sumeria, Babylonia, Arcadia, and Assyria. And the punchline of that discovery is that the source narratives are not about God at all. They are about our ancestors' contact with extraterrestrials. Since in the Western world, we mostly read the King James version of the Bible, how much... Well, no, we don't. No, no, we don't. Uh, English-speaking people read the King James, and only some English people. Well, that that is correct. The, the Western world is full of a whole plethora of translations. Exactly. It's, it's, it's one of the things that ought to clue anybody that it would be helpful to look at the original languages, because whatever Bible you have in front of you, it's going to be a translation of the Greek, in which the texts are originally written in the New Testament, or the Hebrew or Aramaic of the Old Testament. And so it's when you get beyond the English translation and go to the original languages that these other meanings start emerging. And it's interesting you mentioned the King James Mel, because I think one of the reasons that we can miss the extraterrestrial layer to the story is that between the text being written a couple of thousand years ago, uh, two and a half thousand years ago, three thousand years ago, between the time of authorship and the time of reading, we have had generations of translators trying to convey what's in the original text. So when you get to the King James, you've got a Bible that's been written essentially in the language of the 1500s to describe all the phenomena in the Bible. And so when a translator comes across a description of technology, spacefaring technology, interdimensional technology, remote communication technology, those translators had no kind of grid by which to describe those things. Now, you and I today know what a rocket launch looks and sounds like. We have some idea of what a wormhole might look like and how it might perform. We have the concept of an ET, a close encounter, we have the concept of artificial insemination, so on and so forth. So when we find these phenomena in the ancient texts, it's easy for us to read them and say, oh, I think I know what's going on there. The poor translators working on the King James Bible had no clue about any of those things. And it's why some of the technological aspects of the Bible became lost because the translators had no grid by which to translate them in technological terms, and so they translated them in spiritual terms. They supernaturalized the stories. And so that's why it's a great gift to us that we still have access to so many of the very early Hebrew and Greek texts that we can go back and ask, did we read that right? Did we translate that right? 
Well, that was my point. I was starting with the King James Bible, but in reality, as of 2020, I believe, the full Bible has been translated into 704 languages. The New Testament has been translated into an additional 1,551 languages and Bible portions of, or stories into 1,160. So in reality, the Bible has been translated <laughs> into right. 3,415 languages. So how do we determine the real meaning of the original, uh, we say, authors? Well, this is the great gift of, of the texts that are used and that appeal to in the work of Bible translation, that we have very reliable Hebrew texts, very reliable Greek texts, very close in date to the date of authorship. And so every time a Bible translation is put forth, the scholars uh, will go back to those texts and they will ask afresh, Did we, have we translated this right? But they'll also ask the question, how do we render this in a way that our readership will get what's going on? And that's one of the reasons we have so many translations. Partly, it's about reaching different language groups, and that's the main reason. And many of our planet's spoken languages become written for the first time when they get written to produce a New Testament as, uh, as Christianity goes into those territories, which is an, a fascinating story all its own. But then other questions are asked. So, for instance, the Good News Bible is a very popular Bible around the world, English-speaking Bible. And part of the choices they make are based on presenting an English in Bible, a Bible in English that will be understood by readers whose second language is English. So they favor shorter words if ever they have a choice. They favor non-technical words if ever there's a choice. And so when people want to go a little bit deeper in their Bible study, I always say it will have more than one translation because then sort of by triangulation you can get a sense of, oh, this is what's going on in the original text. If it comes out this way and this one, this way and this one, I get a sense of what's going on. But when you're doing a formal Bible translation uh, as a scholar, you will always go to the Hebrew and the Greek, and the great fidelity with which those texts have been preserved through the ages is a huge gift, because we can go back and be pretty sure that we are reading the same Hebrew text that was read in the 5th century BCE, for instance. The a problem occurs when we go back earlier, and we have to start looking at how did the Bible form, and what were the stories before they took the shape that we're now familiar with. And there's a very broad scholarly consensus around the world that the Hebrew canon, the Old Testament as we call it, took its current shape sometime in the 6th century BCE, when in a major edit was done over all those books to create what would appear to be a seamless story of God from beginning to end, turn it into a single book that would teach monotheism. Prior to that, it was a kaleidoscopic canon full of all kinds of entities and encounters that had to be adjusted slightly in order to fit into that monotheistic worldview. So go back earlier, look at the history of the formation, and again, you find the earlier stories, the earlier uh, renderings of those words, and it's a totally different picture that emerges. 
Was it similar to what happened in Egypt with Echinathem when when he introduced monotheism as opposed to what they had before? Well, a little different in the sense that monotheism didn't bed down too well in Egypt because it disempowered all the previous priesthoods. And so politically, it was a very difficult thing to maintain. Um, and for that reason, things reverted to a more polytheistic worldview. Whereas with the Bible, there is a, there is a progression towards monotheism and an attempt to hide the polytheistic roots of Judaism and the polytheistic practice and all the stories of first contact that were in Judaism as well and the ceremonies that record first contact. And so you listen to the stories of the prophets and very often they are calling on the people of God to clean up Judaism and get rid of all these other things and pare it down to a monotheistic religion. Uh, there's a king, Josiah, who's hailed as a great reforming king because he went out and tried to put a stop to all the ceremonies that were carrying more ancient Jewish memory of paleocontact because he wanted a simple, clean story of monotheism with God and the king at the top, uh, the high priests somewhere in the middle, the public servants, and then the priests and the people at the bottom meekly praying and obeying. So there was this big cleanup operation, and it more or less stuck. Today, when you talk about Judaism, people will say, ah, yes, it's one of the world's three great monotheistic religions. Well, no, that's not what Judaism was until there was that cleanup right at the end, and even that wasn't wholly successful, and even the airbrushing of the Hebrew Scriptures wasn't wholly successful, because the shape of these other narratives remains, and it doesn't take too much translation work to bring them to the surface. To what do you attribute the number of books that were removed from the Bible, excluded? And I wonder how much of the new information was adulterated to avoid what was coming to be new religions. Book of Enoch comes to mind. 14, 15 other books were removed as well, maybe maybe more. Well, the, the books were part of a wider canon for a short time. So we're, we're familiar with the Hebrew canon as it is. So most Bibles, you go to them, and it'll be the same list of books in the Old Testament. The books that were removed that people talk about belong to a bigger canon, and that came into being when, between the 3rd and 1st century BCE, Jewish scribes worked to translate the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. There was a strong demand for monotheistic religion around the world at that time, a real interest in it. People were catching on to the idea that there might actually be only one cosmic source, one source of everything in the universe, and people interested in the ancient stories that carried that information. And Judaism appeared to be one of those at that time, after the 6th century BCE edit. And so they worked to put it into Greek, which was the lingua franca of the international world. So they translated the Hebrew canon into Greek, and they also translated other books that had come to be used in mainstream Judaism that were almost accorded the same authority as the other scriptural books. And that included books like the book of uh, Enoch, uh, Maccabees, um, Judith, Tobit, um, other books. And so by the time you get to the year dot, 
and Jesus comes on the scene, when, when those who wrote for Jesus quote from the Hebrew... Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.